All right. I want to draw your attention now to um, the Word of God. And as we uh, begin our time in the sermon this morning, I just want to uh, invite you back to the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 17 of Acts. And so in preparation for the reading of Scripture, if you want to open your Bibles to Acts 17, that'd be great. We're going to look at the account of Paul's visit to Athens in Greece. And this happens to be one of the most popular uh, passages in all of the book of Acts. Uh, if I was to title this message, I guess I did title this message, Making God Known. And by way of the title to this message, I hope that you can understand the implication of what I want to get to you today, uh, that we are going to look at Paul's example to us of how we can make God known to those around us. One commentator actually suggested that Paul's brief visit to Athens is a centerpiece for the entire book of Acts. Maybe. One thing we do know is that the front end of Acts put the focus on the Apostle Peter as he brought the gospel to the Jews, and then the second half of Acts is focusing on the Apostle Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. And as a result, the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ is now spreading throughout the entire world as we know it. So please join your hearts with mine as we pray before we begin. Lord, uh, we invite you to be with us. Holy Spirit, uh, enlighten our minds and our hearts that we may be encouraged today uh, through Paul's example to us of how to engage our culture and share Jesus with others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we take time this morning observing uh, Paul's strategy for evangelism in the influential city of Athens, Greece, we're going to find some important lessons about how we uh, can engage unbelievers today with the gospel. Uh, things that we're going to observe is how Paul uh, brought about an understanding to the culture that he brought the good news to, and so should we. Uh, we're going to see the importance of living with a biblical worldview and how that not only will help us communicate uh, through our words the message of the gospel, but how important that is to live our life as well. We need to be clear about what the gospel is as we live it and as we proclaim it. And lastly, uh, we are going to discover the significance or importance of leaving the results up to God. That's who they actually belong to. So that's where we're going this morning. And one thing I just must mention is that I can't overemphasize today the importance of engaging our culture with the gospel uh, in a way that must be done with both compassion and courageous conviction. If we are going to be people who make Jesus known to others, we must do it first and foremost with compassion for others, genuinely love for other people. And secondly, we must do it courageously and boldly as we hold firm to the convictions that the Word of God put in our lives. And so if we go into the world and we want to share Jesus boldly and courageously with others, but don't bring compassion to the conversation, people will be tone deaf to our message. 
But if we only bring compassion and we never get around to the courageous conversation of talking about sin and the need for a Savior, all we will be doing is essentially loving people to hell. And in the midst of the gospel story, the good news of Jesus, we have to confront sin so that we can find hope in Christ. You know, I can recall my first ever experience in a Mormon church. I was invited by a group of friends to youth group one Wednesday night, and so I decided to go. And as I entered into this Mormon church and we got into the youth program that they had, I realized really quickly that uh, what they believed was very different than what I believed as a Christian. Now, I can also remember walking into the building and seeing things that were unfamiliar to me on the wall, pictures of people and pictures of places and pictures of temples that I was so puzzled by. I had no idea what they were, what they meant, or what they were about. I can remember sitting in this youth group and and, and the teacher talking about things that I'd never heard about and people I've never heard about, like Joseph Smith. Uh, They were teaching about uh, teachings from what they called the Book of Mormon, and, and they understood it to be some source of truth and authority. And then there was this book called The Pearl of Great Price. And what became more puzzling to me was then they also referenced the Bible, and they talked about Jesus. And as a teenager, I was so confused because I was raised in the church. I was raised as a Christian. But all this information was new and news to me, and it made no sense what they were saying. So I remember going home that night, sitting down with my parents and asking the question, uh, what do we believe and why? Because I just encountered something that was totally different than anything I've ever heard of, and is it true or isn't it? And so together we began a journey of really spending time in the Word of God together as a family, discovering (laughs) what we believe and why? Now, the troublesomeness in my spirit as I encountered this false teaching and this, this very different philosophy or theology, I believe is similar to what Paul may have experienced when he ended up in the city called Athens in Greece. Remember, Paul was on a missionary journey. The second one, actually, he had his, his, uh, his team with him, Silas and, and Timothy, and they had gone through Thessalonica, and they were in Berea, and they got chased out of these towns. And so Paul went ahead, and he ended up in the city of Athens while he was waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy to join him. And as he's in Athens, um, he encounters a culture that was totally foreign to him a place where there were gods and there was philosophies and and teachings and things that he had never heard before. But likewise, it was a place that had never heard of the message that Paul brought to them either. You see, it was in Athens, Greece, where Paul began to engage the culture and the people both compassionately and courageously as he brought a good news message of Jesus to a people who had never heard about the one true and living God. His message was so compelling that he was eventually invited to 
the Areopagus, or what we would know as the high council, placed on a hill called Mars Hill. And it was there that Paul was able to give his sermon or presentation of the Christian worldview and introduce the people of Athens to the one true and living God. We pick up in Acts 17, verse 22, with this message. What I want to do this morning is I want to read the message to you so that you can hear Paul's defense of the gospel to a people that it was completely foreign to. Then we're going to back up and we're going to blow up some context so that we can better understand how this message came to be and what application we can actually bring to our lives as a result of it. Beginning in Acts 17, verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. As I mentioned, this is the first time that Paul presented the gospel to a people who had never heard the gospel. Now, if we consider Paul's method of bringing Jesus to people up to this point, we would remember that every time Paul entered a community, he started in the synagogue and he started to reason with the Jews first. And what he did is he took the Old Testament scriptures and he helped them realize that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one they awaited for, was found in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Paul also met with God-fearing Gentiles who had an awareness of the Hebrew God of the Old Testament and the scriptures, and he would help them understand that Jesus is God in the flesh and Savior of the world, and how he's come to have a relationship with them, save them from their sins. And, and so he had that method of reaching people. When he got to Athens, interesting enough, he began in the synagogue In verse 16 of chapter 17, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, this was Timothy and Silas, he was deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. So his method when he got to Athens was to start in the synagogue and then to move his way to the uh, city square, the public square. As he spent time in the public square, he was having debates and conversation with people who were unfamiliar with the Hebrew God, with the God of the Bible, and who had no understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. And so you can imagine how interesting it must have been for Paul, who was troubled in his spirit, to bring the good news about Jesus to a people who not only didn't know Jesus, but had no point of reference to the Hebrew God or the Old Testament scriptures. I got to believe that as he was walking up and down the streets, checking out all these idols and gods that were made from human hands, he was asking the question, how in the world am I going to reach these people? What should I say to them in such a way that will actually connect with them? I think he spent time praying and I think he was asking the Lord, like, you got to help me with this because I don't understand how to connect with a people without a reference point. And yet he found a reference point, an altar that had a description on it or an inscription on it that said to an unknown God. Athens was the cultural and intellectual center of Western thought and really of the Greco-Roman culture. Now, some of the greatest philosophers, thinkers of the past that have influenced our worldview and the West even today were people who taught in Athens in this very place and on Mars Hill. People like Socrates, you've heard of him. How about Plato? Aristotle, all of those names I know should ring a bell. This was the very place that Paul found himself amongst the intellectuals of the day, the people who were the one who set the baseline for philosophy within society and culture. Athens was a Greek city that boasted numerous temples, and was the home to many gods and goddesses. So many so that it was often said of Athens that it was easier to find a god on the streets of Athens than a human being. Reason being, it's estimated there were some 30,000 gods that were created and established in the streets of Athens. They were lined up and down the streets all over the place to a population of people of maybe about 10,000. So there was three gods to every one person you would find there. It was from this perspective that Luke actually writes about Paul's experience. 
Luke tells us that because Paul was deeply troubled by the idols he saw everywhere, he wanted to do something. You see, Paul's worldview, it stood in stark contrast to the Athenian people. He recognized that he was in the midst of a culture and a people that didn't know God, but needed to know God. They didn't need another idol. They needed the one true and living God. So Paul lovingly confronts their idolatry, which is a sin in the eyes of God, and he points people to Jesus. And I want to pause here just for a moment because I think that the scripture is going to do that for us today. I believe it gives us an opportunity right now to ask the question, is there sin, is there an idol in your life that you need to repent of, that you need to deal with, that is getting in the way of your relationship with God? As you ponder that and as you sit on that and as you ask the Lord about that this morning, we're going to come back to it in a little bit. See, Paul had a heart for the lost and his desire was for people to know God. This is why Paul spent time in the synagogue. This is why Paul was willing to go to the public square both the synagogue and the public square he went to on his own. But it was the high council on Mars Hill that he was actually invited to because the message that he was giving people was so intriguing it needed to be heard by the high council. Now, this high council was an interesting group of philosophers and thinkers and people. They were the the politicians and the judges of the day. They listened to criminals and murderers, and they made judgments against people within society, but also new thoughts that were brought into the community or into the societal, uh, the culture that they lived in, they would also review and determine whether or not it was acceptable teaching. And this is why Paul was brought to these people. Verse 19, it says that he was brought to the council to tell us about this new teaching. They found it to be rather strange. After all, he talked about resurrection from the dead. And for them, that was weird. And it made no sense. But we're also told in verse 18 that while he was in the public square, He would debate with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. Well, who are these people anyway? And what was their debate about? I think their debate was really about conflicting worldviews and sharing new ideas with one another. And in an attempt to, I'm going to say, truly oversimplify what an Epicurean believed and what a Stoic taught. I want to hopefully help you understand where they agreed and how they differed. 
and how it stood in con- direct contrast to Paul's worldview and why he brought the message he did. To begin with, both of these worldviews, the Epicureans and the Stoics, well, they believed that they were the result of a cosmic accident resulting from the random collision of two atoms. That our existence as humans on earth was purely by chance and not by the choice of a creator who created humans to have a relationship with. From this point, we can identify their differences because that's about all they agreed on. For the Epicureans, they were materialists. They believed that everything happened by chance and that death is the end. Extinction. That's it with no afterlife. So you were an accident coming into this world. Everything in your life happens by chance. And then at the end of your life, you're just dead and that's it. I hope you see the hope in that life. There isn't one, is there? They believe that there are gods, but that these gods have nothing to do with the world. We could say that they were practical agnostics, that if God exists, we couldn't know anyway. But if he did exist, he would have no desire to have relationship with people. The Epicureans believed that the, the, the chief end or the goal of humanity was pleasure. That if you are here on accident, then the only thing you have to look forward to is a life of pleasure. And this is found in simple living through the foods that you eat, the drinks that you drink, the relationships that you have with people. That was an Epicurean. For a Stoic, they were pantheists, believing that everything is God and whatever happened to them was their destiny. So you're a cosmic accident and you as an accident are part of God. The seat you're sitting on is part of God. The floor I'm standing on is part of God. All of this is by chance. Their attitude was what will be, will be. And as a result, it caused them to be apathetic and distant from relationship and how light they interacted with the world around them. They lived by reason and saw history as a a never-ending cycle of order followed by chaos followed by order. And that they would have to endure suffering and at the end of their life, their suffering would be over. And rather than looking forward to an afterlife, they were just absorbed back into the cosmos and became part of creation. So these were the competing philosophies that Paul was debating and talking with. These differences remind us that people all around us see things differently. We don't all see things the same, do we? Today, we, we live in a time and an age where intellectualism is the thing you want to boast about, followed by support of scientific evidence. For intellectuals who base their philosophy or theology or lack thereof on science, they would look to us as Christians, as people who are uneducated, ridiculous, and lean on Jesus as a crutch 
because we're unintelligent beings. Whether you're an Epicurean, whether you're a Stoic, whether you're an intellect or a scientist, from that perspective, these philosophies all stand in stark contrast to a Christian worldview, but also help us to see how we today are even influenced by people who still think like this. As Christians, we enjoy many of the same things that non-Christians enjoy in life, but we see them differently. When you become born again, God makes you a new person, and as a result, he gives you a new set of eyes to see the world, and God now wants to shape in you over time the ability to see the world as he sees it, which is revealed in his word, but also through the spirit that he's placed in us. So we have a new set of lenses that we look through life, we look to life through. We view our work and our debt differently. We view money and and sex and marriage differently than the world. We view people in need differently. We view our neighbors differently as Christians. We view life and we view death differently as Christians than the world does. We see the world differently because God is helping us to see the world as he sees it so that he can align our heart to his. And as a result of that, we find the compassion we need to go into the world. And when we're troubled by a false teaching or a philosophy that's misleading, we can love them and bring them to Jesus. So there's four observations that I just want to make about Paul's approach to his message to the Athenians that I think can be directly applicable to our lives as Christians today. The first one is the need to understand the culture. We must pay attention to the world around us and pick an appropriate starting point for talking to Jesus, or talking to people about Jesus. Remember, compassion and conviction have to come together. If we only tell people about Jesus, but they don't experience our compassion, as I said, they're not going to listen to our message. But if we only try to help them think of God as a loving God, but we never get around to talking with them about their sin and need for a savior. We're going to lead them astray. When we think of a starting point in people's lives, we we have to understand that their starting point is different than our starting point, so we don't start with what we know. We start with where they're at. Paul had a point of contact With the Athenians, he had a point of conflict, and it was through that that he found an avenue to bring the revelation of God to them. Notice he started by saying, I see, I see that you are a very religious people. I've been all over your community, and I've been talking with people, and there's gods everywhere. But I see you also have this altar to the unknown God, and and, and I want to talk about this unknown God. 
Because the God that's unknown to you can be known. That was mind-blowing to them. Not only will God make himself known, but I can have relationship and know God. Absolutely. See, we live in a world where we must understand our culture to be effective in reaching others with the gospel. So we happen to live in a community here in Alexandria and the surrounding area that there's the influence of the church, there's Christianese language, uh, people are familiar with the Bible and Jesus, so that it's not unfamiliar language uh, to be able to sit and have conversations with people. Every week as a pastor, I struggle with the cultural connection with you as a people for this reason. Uh, Number one, there's people in our church that are zero to 100 years old. There's the non-believer to the extremely mature believer. There are those who are apathetic towards God, but they show up because they're told they have to be here by their family, their spouse. There are those who really come here to meet with God. There are those who are seeking God. You see the gamut? And then there are those who grew up in the church, and this is the only thing you know, and the whole time you've been here, you just knew it was good for you to go to church, but you've never actually heard that going to church isn't going to do anything for you in terms of your eternal life. That you must repent of your sin, and you must receive Jesus, and you must be born again in order to be part of the family of God. And so, there are some people in our church who go, have gone through their whole entire life going through the motion, but never knowing God. And at some point, it's my appeal to you to wake up, but I know that's the Holy Spirit's job to wake you up to that truth and that, to that reality. This is why the gospel always makes us confront sin in our life, but the gospel also always provides a way for us to find hope in our life, freedom and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. It's hard to be able to try to put together a message that connects with everybody. If you were an audience that was entirely made up of university students, I would bring a very different set of language to this group than I would to you who live in Alexandria that are surrounded by at least the church and the Bible and Christian teachings. And I think for Paul, he met a crossroad in his bringing the gospel to the world where what he was so accustomed to doing, he needed to shift dramatically Because for the first time, he stood before a bunch of intellects who knew nothing about the God of the Bible, the one true and living God. And so he had to try to figure out how to connect with them. And so do we. We need a starting point. Not our starting point, their starting point, if we're going to get the message across. The second observation I think we can make about Paul in the way that he brought the gospel to Athens was that we must hold firm to a biblical worldview. We have to know as Christians what we believe and why. If we're ever going to be persuasive in bringing people the good news message of Jesus. And it's more than intellectual knowledge. It's more than having the words right. If you don't combine living the gospel with 
speaking the gospel, your words fall on deaf ears. The spirit of the living God has to change us and transform us. The fruit of the spirit should be present in us and people experience that love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We must be people who are forgiving, people who are loving, people who are compassionate so that when we get courageous in bringing the message of sin and the need for repentance and a savior, people understand that we've been changed and we're bringing something that we have been affected by to them. Our worldview isn't what we believe in terms of what we think we believe. Our worldview as a Christian should be based on what God says about himself, which is in the very word of God. We mustn't compromise our biblical convictions and beliefs. Notice Paul didn't. He stood firmly on what God said about himself. And he made that message clear. I think too many churches today are compromising on their convictions and on the teaching of Scripture. They're setting aside the authority of Scripture to entertain people with good stories and make them feel like God is loving and will accept them however they are and wherever they're at in life. But if we don't present the God of the Bible as one who brings judgment and wrath because of our sin, but also provides love and hope and forgiveness, we're not bringing the one true and living God to people. We're just tickling their ears. And so we must understand that the God of the Bible wants to be made known. He will confront our sin and he will give us hope. I'm not going to go through Paul's sermon. I read it to you, but I'm going to give you the basic outline of it because it will make sense in light of what he was facing, what he decided to give in terms of his response. And so this is really the outline. Paul basically put the gospel in the bigger story of the Bible by proving God's existence and the need for repentance and faith in Jesus. And he did this by starting out saying that there is a God and he is creator. He goes on to talk about God as a sustainer of life. That God is the ruler of the nations. That we can know God and be known by God. He talks about God as the father of humanity. So there's a relational aspect to God. And finally, he gets around to explaining God as both judge and rescuer. And that's where we find hope. Together, we're learning the verse of the week, week in and week out. And just week one was right here, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You want to live with a biblical worldview? Remember, that's what this is all about. A lamp to my feet exposes where I should be standing on God's word. A light to my path where I should be going if I'm going God's way and what I should be sharing if I'm sharing God with others. The third observation we can make about Paul and his testimony at the High Council is that we must be clear about the gospel. 
We must be clear about the gospel with compassion and courage as we live it and as we tell it. It's a call to repentance. Specifically, Paul was confronting the sin of idolatry within culture. And he's calling them out and he is saying, there is only one God and he wants no other gods in your life but him and him alone. Repent of whatever God you have put in your life that is replacing the one true God and turn to him and he will love you and forgive you and give you life. So my question to you this morning is, what idol in your life do you need to get rid of that has taken God's place in your heart? What sin do you need to confess because it's getting in the way of your right relationship with God? Idols are not just fixtures made of stone. Idols are the very thing that we turn to when we need something that only Jesus can provide. One commentator said, Idols aren't just statues worshipped at shrines. They're substitute gods and functional saviors that supplant the true and living God in the human heart. Idols can take on the form of all kinds of things in our society, approval from others, pursuit of success, drive for sex, unhealthy relationships, obsession with people and individuals, wanting to be somebody you're not. Maybe your idol is food or money or pleasure or education. See, we don't walk the streets of Alexandria and find statues to worship. We walk our streets filled with the temptation of all that the world has to offer us to place, replace within our heart the place that God deserves to be. But the good news of the gospel is that we can find forgiveness and freedom when we confess our sin to Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. The fourth thing that pops up as a point of application in observation of how Paul brought Jesus to Athens is that we must leave the results up to God. They don't belong to us anyway. Only God can change people's hearts. We can't do that. I want you to notice that there were three different responses to Paul's message and his short time in Athens. Number one, few people believed and followed. Number two, some people said, I need to think more about what you just said. But number three, most people rejected Paul's message and thought he was a lunatic. Our job as Christians is to be faithful in loving other people. When we do that with compassion, when we do that with conviction, when the message of our mouth aligns with the action of our life, we can engage our culture in a way that will be transformational because the message we're bringing is a message of hope 
And that hope is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is how we are to engage our culture and change the world through Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the encouraging word this morning. I pray that as we, your people, consider Paul's example, what it means to bring good news to people in our lives, that God, we would recognize the importance truly relying on you, God. I pray that today we would be filled with hope that it's not up to us to change people. It really is up to you. That God, we would find good starting points with those around us that, that, that we would truly understand who you are and what you say about yourself. That we would be clear about the gospel in both the message we proclaim and the life that we live that we can trust the results that come through our faithful proclamation of you, God, will be results that bring people into the family of God. Thanks for loving us and for your spirit that's in us. Encourage us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.